How are you? All right, folks, good evening. Glad you came out tonight. You know, I left my house and it just started pouring. I was like, man, I don't know if anybody's going to show up, but look at all you guys that came out. It's awesome. Uh, we are in Daniel chapter 9 this evening. We're going to do the whole chapter. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Stephen is up and he's got a few Bibles in his hand, so you can just bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. The book of Daniel chapter 9. A couple of things I want to pray about before we actually get into our study this evening. Uh, this afternoon about, I guess it's about 4 o'clock, we had about six cars pull into our, our driveway right here and, and uh, all, you know, I couldn't tell what they were until all the policemen came out. <laughs> And they were all in their, their bulletproof vests and, and uh, they uh, walked across the street with their shield and, you know, all that stuff to break down doors. And there was a, some sort of arrest. A girl came out and they had the dog get her and she was down on the ground. And just a, a sad situation. I mean, I'm watching it going, what is going on? As I'm looking back and, you know, I don't get shot, but, you know, I had my laptop like this, so it hit the laptop first, but... Um, shut up the word of God, right? It's the Bible stuff. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I looked at the girl down on the ground. I looked at the dog kind of, you know, growling at her. And I, it just broke my heart is what it did. I, I saw that and I thought, you know, this girl looks like she's probably, I mean, she looked like she wasn't even 20 years old. Looked really young. And, and I don't know what's going on over there. Just I thought, we'll pray for that family tonight and 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 I pray that God gets a hold of whatever God gets a hold of their lives and then and then the other thing uh Charles Best texted me earlier today and he had a very good friend of his Elizabeth Anderson passed away from cancer and it was really quick and and uh and so it's just it's just tough when that happens and and so we just want to pray for comfort for the family uh for for her and and uh for that and then we'll pray for the study and and get into that so let's pray together Father, you are so good and so kind and loving. We thank you, Lord, for drawing us together this evening. Lord, for opening up our eyes and showing us our need for salvation, that we know you and love you and serve you. And, and Lord, you speak to our hearts through your word, and we have this relationship with you, and our sin has been forgiven. Lord, we are so thankful for, for so much. Lord, we look around this world and, and this family across the street that, are, that I know are, are lost. They don't know you, Lord, and that just the result of that... There's turmoil in their lives. And so I don't know what's going on there, Lord, but I pray uh, through what's going on that these folks would come to know you as Lord and as Savior. And, uh, Lord, that uh, through this you'd be glorified. And, Father, we just want to lift up the, the family and friends of Elizabeth Anderson. Uh, Lord, just pray for peace and comfort during this time. Holy Spirit, you are the great comforter. And, and Lord, you, you're, you're the only one that can bring comfort in times like these. And so I just pray that you bring just a comfort to this family peace. Uh, Lord, if there's any in the family that don't know you through Elizabeth's death, Lord, that they would come to know you as Lord and as Savior. And now, Lord, we ask your blessing upon our time together as we uh, uh, take a look at Daniel chapter 9, Lord, that you'd give us not only understanding, not only information, but application in our lives as well. Bless our time together, we pray. Lord, keep the kids safe. I know they're going out on a special uh, mission tonight for stuff for the uh, Operation Christmas Child, for the shoeboxes, um, the high schoolers and junior highs. Bless them, Lord. Keep them safe, we pray. Bless their night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, Daniel chapter 9, we really are at the last four chapters of the book of Daniel. These closing chapters contain some of the most clearest, detailed prophecies in the Bible, and most of them really have already been fulfilled. Now, chapter 9 is a very important chapter dealing with what's commonly known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, understanding the 70 weeks of Daniel is really basic to Bible prophecy. There are those who, because of a lack of care or just a lack of understanding of what God's Word teaches concerning prophecy and last-day events, eschatology, they end up having a wrong view of prophecy. And sadly, as a result of that, many people today, they look around what's going on in the world and they blame the nation of Israel. It's all Israel's fault. The turmoil is going on. It's Israel's fault. Even in Christian churches, they blame Israel and they suggest that God is somehow done with the nation of Israel. That's it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Daniel 9 proves that. And it's for that reason that I think that it's more important now more than ever before as believers to have a good grasp, a good understanding of just basic prophecy in Scripture. People today are looking for answers, that they're struggling to, to put the events that we see going on in the world into perspective. And the perspective they need is in our hands and on our lips. It's a written prophecy from the inspired Word of God. Well, the world is shouting, hey, we need to be politically correct. No, we need to be prophetically correct is what we need to be. And the place to start uh, uh, to be prophetically correct about Israel and the way to do that is to understand Daniel, Daniel's 70 weeks. And we'll take a look at that this evening. Now we left off in chapter 8 with Daniel seeing a vision that really, really blew his mind. The vision was of this little horn and we saw how this little horn was a Syrian leader who was going to come on the scene. A man by the name of Antichus Epiphanes. He was, uh, you know, you might call, a, a, many call the, the, the Caesar Nero of the Old Testament. His atrocities were, were, in many ways, even greater and more brutal than Adolf Hitler himself. But that little horn of chapter 8 was simply a foreshadowing of the one still yet to come, one who is called Antichrist, who is also called the little horn of chapter 7 of Daniel. Now, Daniel had received this information, and it was affecting him greatly. In fact, look at verse 27 of chapter 8. Daniel faints. He says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I rose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Maybe some of you are feeling that the same way after this point in Daniel. I Man, I know these things are heavy. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's heavy. I don't really understand the vision the way I'd like to understand that. Hopefully you won't pass out. But my prayer is, though you may not fully uh, get or identify the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image or the, the figure out what beast is what or, or what the 70 weeks of Daniel is all about. As valid as those things are, my prayer is that knowing these things will happen, that will happen will have an effect on your life right now. That we will live with this knowledge and this hope and this anticipation that Jesus could return at any moment. And that the world is coming to a climax very, very soon. And like Daniel in verse 27 says, it will cause us to rise up and do our king's business to serve our Lord. I mean, that's really the ultimate purpose of prophecy. Not to satisfy our curiosity, but to motivate us into activity. And Daniel chapter 9 shows us the priority of that kind of activity in serving our king. Now, the most important uh, aspect that we can do in serving the king is that we really become men and, and women of prayer. 
And that's why Daniel chapter 9 flows right into a recorded prayer that the Holy Spirit preserved for all of us to study. Whenever the Holy Spirit records and preserves prayer in, in God's Word, we ought to take heed because there's definitely some things in this that we need to learn. E.M. Bounds, who wrote a great book on prayer, writes, God shaped this world through prayer. Prayers are deathless. The lips that uttered them may be closed in death. The heart that felt them may have ceased to beat, but the prayers live before God. And God's heart is set on them and prays outlive, and prayers outlive the lives of those who utter them, outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. I like that. You know, the, the great grandmother that prayed for her great grandkids that they would come to know the Lord one day, that prayer, even though great grandma's been long gone, actually came to fruition because, because God heard that prayer and it happened. Well, here in Daniel 9, as well as Ezra Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, are three of the greatest prayer chapters of the Old Testament. We begin now, verses 1 and 2. We read, In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now this is interesting to me because even though Daniel was a man of prayer and faith, and even though he was used by God in many ways to reveal the truth of God, Daniel also knew that he needed to be in the Word of God himself. Remember, Daniel had a new job, one, one with incredible responsibility and time commitment. He's overseeing one of the largest nations on the earth, and, or the largest nation on the earth, but he still had time to study God's Word, to be in God's Word. It's been rightly said, if we get into the Word, the Word will get into us. Now, the year was 538 B.C. Daniel had been carried away captive at the time of the first Babylonian invasion of Judah in the year 605 B.C. Cyrus the Persian had taken Babylon just a year prior to the events recorded in this chapter. Darius Mede is in control of this capital city. It's been 67 years since the Babylonian captivity had started. Now, Daniel, he's reading his Bible, and he's reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, to be exact. We studied Jeremiah not too long ago. And Daniel discovers a passage there that indicated that the captivity of the Jewish people would be over at the end of 70 years. The, the, the prophecy of the 70-year captivity is found in Jeremiah 25.11 and Jeremiah 29.10. You see, the years before the Babylonian captivity happened, when Nebuchadnezzar had just become the king of Babylon, uh, Jeremiah had written by the command of God to the people of Judah. And he's writing, and he's telling them, you need to listen, you need to repent, you need to turn, but if you don't do that, then you're going to be judged. Listen to Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. The Lord speaking to Jeremiah says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. You see, the Lord instructed the Jews since they've been in the land in the time of Joshua, 490 years, that every seventh year they were to let the land rest. They were to leave it alone, not, you know, plow the fields, just let it rest. That was the law. The land was to have its own Sabbath. They were not to plan on it. They were just to, they could eat what grew wild. But, you know, God would, would provide for them such an abundant harvest on the sixth year that they didn't have to, to plant the harvest for the seventh year. Well, the people, they didn't obey God. 
And they did not give the land the rest, but they planted it every single year. And so God says, well, you've been in the land for 490 years. You, you've never given it its Sabbath. It, it's, it's got 70 years coming, so I'm going to kick you out of the land for 70 years so that the land can have its Sabbath that it deserves to have. And then after the 70 years, you can go back. So these 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah are just about over. Daniel's seeing this. Imagine how excited he was when he realized only three more years to go. We'll be released. We can go home. He realized the prophecy was happening right before his very eyes. Now, how much today do we do the same thing? We look around and we go, man, prophecy is happening right before our very eyes. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Beginning with the nation of Israel being reborn. Well, the first thing Daniel does when he realizes this time was almost up is he just breaks out in prayer. I love that. He's reading the word. He understands it. And he's just overwhelmed. And he's just got to break out in, in prayer. Again, he realizes their captivity is almost over. So verse 3, he says, Then I set my face towards the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. First thing we, we see here, uh, as Daniel's reading the word, he's moved to pray, and then he prepares himself for prayer. He set his face. This speaks of, of a determination. This, I, I'm going to sit down. I am going to pray right now. We need that in this day and age with all the distractions we got going on. To say, I'm going to pray. And we read that he put on sackcloth, which is like basically this, this hairy garment, the camel's hair usually turned inside out, make it really, really scratchy, very, very uncomfortable. And then they put ashes all over their, their face, dumped, his hair, dumped it in his hair, and, and, and he's fasting. Now, why is he doing all of that? Well, because he's serious about showing how he's seeking the Lord. He's serious about it. He's humbling himself. Now, thankfully... We don't have to do that to show the Lord we're serious. I don't know where you can get some camel skin and put it back in fur and dump ashes all over you. But the thing of it is, we can be serious with the Lord. Fasting is a way to do that in those times of seriousness. Fasting is an incredibly important part of the Christian arsenal or weaponry in both doing battle against Satan, the enemy, and in seeking our Father and His blessing. See, all day long, we are bombarded with, with stimulus, advertising and music and social media. And then not only you know, what we see, but then our senses are, are bombarded. You know, our, our stomachs, our physical beings is constantly craving certain kinds of foods, Krispy Kremes. And, and, and we're, we're just stuffing ourselves all the time, Andy's. And, and, and you see, and we do that and we have that, that desire that, oh, I, I got to have that. But see, fasting is a way to say... No, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to continue bombarding myself with this, these physical sensations and stimulus. I'm going to slow it down. Only one donut and only one small Andy. No, no. <laughs> Actually, none. Because, you see, physiologically, we do know that when we digest food, all the blood goes to our, our stomach. And, and the digestive tract begins to digest the process. And if you're fasting then the blood is free to, to stay up and move into your brain, which I think you clearly, you think clearer when, when you're fasting to a certain point to when you're starving to death and then you can't think at all. But, but fasting is, is a very, very valuable tool for the Christian to say, Lord, instead of feeding my flesh, I'm going to feed my spirit. And every time I have this craving to, to eat this meal, I, I'm, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to seek you instead. It could just be one meal. It could be 
all day, a whole meal. It could be a couple days, you know. But, but, but the point is, you're denying your flesh, feeding your spirit, seeking the Lord. Now, I wanted to bring up that fasting is not something we do to prove to God that we are devoted to Him either. It's not, a, we're not trying to, to, God, if I fast for two days, then you'll help me win the lottery, right? It, it doesn't work that way. That's not what fasting is about. Fasting is, is not a way to, to overcome guilt or some way to prove your, your righteousness. But it's, it's, again, placing yourself in a position where you're concentrating on the spiritual, reducing the physical, and there's power in that. And, and Daniel knew that. He's fasting here. He started fasting way back in chapter 1, and now he's in his late 80s, possibly in his 90s, and he's still making it a practice to fast. And then he begins to pray. Look at verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts, and your judgments. Notice that, that Daniel's prayer is not a prayer of all the righteous things he has done. He didn't go before the Lord and say, Lord, you remember how, you know, when they told me not to pray, I still prayed three times a day. Lord, you remember how I went in that lion's den and, and, and I, I did all the good stuff I've done. And, 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 and he didn't do that. Daniel instead begins his prayer with adoration first. You, you are a great God. And, and then, he, then it moves to confession of sin. And notice Daniel doesn't say, Lord, this nation, they had turned their back on you. And, and they were, were horrible. They, they didn't want to follow you. God, my country is full of, of rebels. No, look what he says. He says, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Verse 6. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. I think it's easy for us, especially in our, our culture and our nation today, to point fingers. Oh, oh, the White House or the Supreme Court or the Republicans are definitely the Democrats, you know. And look how our, our leaders are not, they're, man, they're not, they're not walking, you know, with the Lord. They're not walking in opposition to God. They're, they're not doing what they should be doing. But let's be fair. Daniel said that the prophet spoke to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Not just the leaders, but all the, the non-political people in the land. Everyone. See, we are all responsible for what we have heard and what the Lord tells us. We're not, not responsible for what the Lord tells you. I'm responsible for what the Lord tells me. And of course, the writings of Jeremiah were fresh in Daniel's mind. And he certainly knew, though, that no one had listened to the Lord's warnings. Instead, the officials had become angry. Remember, Jeremiah threw him in prison. The story was much the same for every prophet that the Lord would, would send to Israel. They would say, repent, turn from their sin. They wouldn't listen. As a matter of fact, Stephen, in, in the New Testament, rhetorically asked the high priest in the council in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, he says, which one of the prophets did your father not persecute? Which one did you not harass? Jesus took it even a step further and more bluntly when he told them in Matthew twenty three thirty one, You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So he's saying, what's going on here? Next look at verse 7. Daniel continues his prayer. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face 
as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And what, a, what, a, what a contrast. To us belongs shame, but to God belongs mercy and forgiveness. A fireman was once instructing a kindergarten class what to do in case of a fire. He said, the first thing you need to do is go to the door and fill in if it's hot. Second, you drop to your knees. Does anyone know why you drop to your knees? One little boy raised his hand. Sure, to ask God to get you out of the mess you're in. <laughs> Daniel felt the door. It was hot. God was ready to move, so he dropped to his knees and he's asking for mercy. And I love the fact here that Daniel doesn't put even a hint of blame on the Lord. He knows that God is righteous and that they have been unrighteous. He knows that God is faithful and they have been unfaithful. Again, they were driven out of their land because of their bad behavior, because of their sin. But I think many people, you know, they look at the bad circumstances they're in and they blame God. How many times have you heard people say, well, how could a God of love do this or that? But the fact is, there's consequences to our sins. Too many times people have blamed God for a bad situation when in reality it was for their own sin that took them there in the first place. See, God, or Daniel acknowledges that their captivity was their fault, not God's. He says, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants and prophets. He goes on, look at verse 11. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us, because we have sinned against Him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judge us, by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what had been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, Though we have not obeyed his voice. Again, the Lord had sent prophet after prophet to warn Israel of their, their, the consequences of their rebellion. But not just through the prophets, but here we read that it's also through the law delivered through Moses. For, for example, the first 13 verses of the book of Leviticus chapter 26 are spent uh, talking about the blessings that they'll receive if they're obedient and they follow the Lord. Let me give you an example, Leviticus 26, 3 and 4. If you walk on my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season, the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Leviticus 26, 3 and 4. But then the, the, the last 30 verses or so in, in, in Leviticus 26 details that the curse and punishment they'll bring upon themselves for rejecting the Lord's warning. Listen to, to Leviticus 26, 14 through 16. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even 
appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Again, time and time again, God warned them of the consequences of rebellion, not just through the prophets, but the law that was delivered through Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a similar chapter where the Lord reminds them yet again of the blessings and the curses, depending on their behavior towards the Lord. Now Daniel continues his prayer. Look at verse 15. And now, O Lord, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Again, Daniel says, we, not they, who sinned against them. And, and, and again, also, understand the format of Daniel's prayer. First there was adoration, then there was confession. Now Daniel moves into supplication or request. Look at verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. But because of your great mercies. Now people often say, well prayer changes things. And that's not exactly true. Prayer changes you. Prayer changes me. Here Daniel is to that place where he's saying, God I want to get in harmony with, with your will. I've read Jeremiah that our time is almost over. I'm confessing our sins. I realize that we are in this place of rebellion. Now, Lord, forgive us. And, and Lord, please remember us. See, see, uh, Daniel's not demanding from God to do anything, demanding that God do something. God, you have to do it. No, he's simply placing himself in harmony with the heart of God. Isn't that what true prayer truly is? Lord, I want to be in harmony with your will. I want to be in harmony with, with where you're going, where, where you lead. I don't want to go out on my own. Lord, I, I want to follow what you want, would have me to do. Not demanding, not driving, not commanding, but rather placing myself in a position where I'm in harmony with the Lord because he knows best. You know, there's a saying, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, they say, God is your co-pilot. You know, you, you know, no, no, God's not my co-pilot. I'm not even in the cockpit, okay? Uh, I'm in the back. God, God is the one flying the plane. So Daniel says, Lord, these are your people. The city is called by your name. And he prays, Lord, we've come to you not on our own righteousness, but verse 18, but your great mercies. And that's a great verse to underline. Underline verse 18. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. That's the only way we can approach God in the first place. Based on His mercy and His loving kindness, nothing we can do. I, can, I can't come to God based on any righteousness of my own. I have none. Any worthiness of my own. I'm not worthy. I certainly never pray, Lord, give me what I deserve. <laughs> that would be disastrous. It would be horrible. I only come to God based on His mercy and His loving kindness. That's the only way I can come to God. Next, Daniel appeals to God for deliverance in verse 19. Not because of his merits, not because of the people of Israel deserve God's compassion, 
But based on the Lord's righteousness, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness, His grace. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay your own sake. For you, do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. I mean, again, this is how we need to be relating to God. I mean, if you've been coming to God for blessings based on, on your own righteousness, I mean, you, you've been going down the wrong way. If you've been afraid to come to God uh, for blessings because of your unrighteousness, that's going the wrong way as well. The way we approach God is in humility, repentance, brokenness, acknowledging that God wants to bless us in spite of ourselves. But notice also in verse 19, the three exclamation points all in one verse. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Daniel's not just praying. He's praying with a passion. And so should we. I think there's a big difference between just saying, oh Lord, we're just, just here. And, and Lord, just, just forgive. And Lord, we'd just love for you to just save the world. <laughs> no, he's saying, Lord, here, Lord, please forgive, Lord, act. It, 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 it's uh, praying with passion. I've heard it said, the prayer God answers comes not from the roof of your mouth, but from the root of your heart. Well, here now God answers Daniel's prayer. Look at verses 20 through 23. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer... The man, Gabriel, who had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked to me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So as Daniel is praying, angel Gabriel appears to him. I'd seen this before. Back in chapter 8, verse 16, Daniel had the vision of the ram being defeated by a goat, and he's trying to figure out what that vision meant. He heard a voice which called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Now, Gabriel's come back to give Daniel another explanation of the vision. Or Daniel had come to Daniel to explain the vision. Now, now he sent to Daniel again to really to reveal another piece of the prophetic puzzle of what's happening here. Because Gabriel told Daniel that he was about to give him skill to understand. I like that. He's given him skill to understand. You know, a lot of Christians, we pray for revelation, for insight, for understanding. Lord, pray for vision. They go, well, I pray for that. How come Daniel was single out to receive this skill to understand? I think the scripture is pretty clear because he was highly esteemed. I, I think... I, I believe that this is what prevents many Christians from receiving great revelation. Think about this. Who, who received the book of Revelation? The Apostle John. And he's referred to five times in Scripture as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Noah. I mean, he was told about the coming destruction of the earth by water. Now, why? Well, the Scripture says in Genesis 6-8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How did Noah find favor in the Lord? Because he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6, 9 says. See, walking with God is the key to receiving revelation from God. Living a righteous life is important when you're wanting vision from a righteous God. 
If you're praying, you're seeking the Lord, you're living righteously, God's going to bless you. But man, if you're in sin and you, you do, you're living in your flesh, how can you expect God to give you revelation other than repent and turn from your sin? I think of Abraham, to whom God appeared and spoke to you, was considered a, a friend of God. How did that happen? Well, James tells us in James 2.23, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Man of righteousness, a man of faith, is a true friend of God. Again, if we want revelation, make sure we're living a life that would cause you to be highly esteemed in heaven. Now, there is a Hebrew phrase in verse 28 that has given some translators some difficulty. Not 28, verse 21, I'm sorry. Verse 21 says this, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, what I read about this was the New King James Version says, fly swiftly. Gabriel, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And the New American Standard translates it, came to me in my extreme weariness. NIV says, he came to me in swift flight. The King James likewise says, being caused to fly swiftly touched me. And it, well, obviously, it can't mean both things. However, either statement could be backed up by other scriptures. Certainly, Daniel would be extremely weary after a long period of fasting and prayer. On the other hand, it does seem from chapters 10, uh, verses 12 to 13, that angels are bound by time and physical limits, even in the spiritual realm. So, I don't think you can be dogmatic on either of the translations. Just something I wanted to point out, something interesting. Uh, it does say that Gabriel reached Daniel about the time of the evening offering, we read in verse 21. And that's interesting. Simple fact, which, which Daniel states, that, that I, I think if you just kind of read it and slipped over it, you wouldn't see what's really there. Remember, the evening offering had not been made for over 60 years because Nebuchadnezzar trashed the temple and, and took the, 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 the Jews captive, killed the Jews. Why would Daniel make reference to the fact that the angel Gabriel came to him during the time of the evening offering? What's even happening? Well, because from Daniel's perspective, Daniel's worldview was, that, was always from God's perspective, not an earthly one. Daniel's heart was still set on the Lord, what God had established, even though he's living in this heathen society. Same thing that the scripture teaches each one of us, that, that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Live our lives according to God's perspective and not from a worldly view. So Daniel receives this remarkable answer to prayer. This angel Gabriel was, Gabriel was dispatched to him. Then in four relatively short verses, Daniel was shown the whole future of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. See, Daniel had been contemplating the 70-year captivity in the kingdom. Gabriel tells him, hey, it's not about the 70 years, which are almost finished. It's about the 70 weeks, which were future. Look at verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In God's eyes, all of humanity is broken down into three groups of people. The Jews, the church, and the Gentiles, or the lost world. Now this prophecy relates to just one of those groups. It doesn't relate to the Jews. I mean, it doesn't re relate rather to the Gentiles. It doesn't relate to the church. It relates only 
for the Jews. These seven weeks are determined for the Jews and Jerusalem, for your people and for your holy city. Then Gabriel gives a time frame. He says, is determined or divided out. It's marked off on God's calendar. God has, has blocked off in his daytimer a period of 70 weeks to accomplish a certain purpose for Israel. Now understand the language here. The word week in our text is actually the Hebrew word for seven. It's the Hebrew word Shabua. It actually means sevens. It can be seven of anything. It's similar to, to our English word for dozen. You got a dozen, you know, dozen of this, dozen of twelve or something. So we have seven of something. But here's the question. Seven what? Seven hours, seven days, seven years? Well, there are three reasons I believe that this seven, seven periods of, are seven years. First, to speak of a week of years in Daniel's day, it was a common phrase. We call it, you know, ten years, a decade. The Hebrew spoke of it, years in groups of sevens. Secondly, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, it mentions a period of 1,290 days from the defilement of the temple uh, to its purification. That's kind of, that's equal to the, the three and a half, last half of Daniel's last week, three and a half years, uh, then a full week would be seven years. The number three, we looked at this already, Moses commanded that every seventh year the land should rest, the fields you know, go uncultivated. This would replenish the nutrients, keep the farm fertile. But because of the greed the Jews had, they, they ignored that command. Second Chronicles 36.21 tells us that for 490 years, or 77s, they failed to let the land rest. They violated the 70 Sabbath years. That's why they spent 70 years in captivity. Here's the point. It took the Jews 77s, or 490 years, to get into this trouble. And God has allotted the same amount of time to get the Jews out of this trouble. And, and, and here the purpose of these 490 years is for six promises of God to be accomplished. We read them to, to finish the transgression. That word transgression literally means rebellion. We're going to stop the rebellion. To make an end of sins. The sin of God's people would, would be completely done away with. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Somehow all the iniquity, that inward sin of the heart would be paid for. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That's a promise that at some point a kingdom of righteousness would never end, would be set up. Then he says, to seal up vision and prophecy, all of the prophetic visions and messages that God spoke of would be fulfilled, and finally to anoint the most holy place. God's holy temple would once again be established. Now as we look at these, these six things, have any of them happened yet? Well, rebellion continues among the Jews. They still sin. A kingdom of everlasting righteousness has never been established. And so logically we know that all vision and prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. A temple was rebuilt but none exists today. Practically speaking, the only one of these prophecies that has been accomplished is the third one to make reconciliation for iniquity. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for all iniquity. Here's the point. If these things have not been accomplished yet, then we have to conclude that they are still yet future. Therefore, God is not done with the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. That's the link here. These things are, are yet in the future. So Gabriel then gets even more specific. Look at verse 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that until the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So Gabriel is telling us the starting point of these last 490 years or 70 weeks of years. He says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, 
will be the beginning of the 70 weeks of years. Now, there's four possible commands to when, when that took place, recorded in Scripture. We could choose a different starting point, but three of them relate to the rebuilding of the temple. Only one, though, refers to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and that's what uh, uh, Gabriel is saying here. It's the decree of the Persian ruler Artaxerxes recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. And we know that this decree came out March 14, 445 B.C. And so the 77s begin on that exact date, March 14, 445 B.C. Gabriel gives a little more understanding. He says that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, March 14, 445 B.C., until Messiah the Prince... Notice that this prophecy of the Messiah, but not Messiah the baby, or Messiah the Lamb of God, no, Messiah the Prince. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach Nagid. Uh, Nagid is Hebrew for leader, ruler, or prince. So he says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, he says, then there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks the streets should be built again on the wall, even in troublesome times. So he's dividing the 70 weeks into three time periods. First, he says, seven weeks and 62 weeks will equal 69 weeks. So there's seven weeks, 49 years, 62 weeks, 434 years, and then one week left, seven, seven years. So he says, 49 years will come to pass. Most conservative scholars understand this to be the t- period of time from the decree until the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. That was accomplished even during troublesome times. If you read about, read in Nehemiah, man, they had trouble getting that accomplished. But then 62 weeks later, 434 years later, something else happens. Now here's the exciting part. Exciting part. Daniel was told the exact day that the Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem. Seven weeks and 62 weeks are 69 seven-year periods, or 483 years later, the Messiah would come. It's all there. They should have expected it. They should have seen that if they studied, studied God's Word. There's a book out. I've, I've shared this before. It's called uh, The Coming Prince. I think that's what it's called. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson. And uh, it made a detailed study of this time period. He based his calculations on the biblical calendar of 360 days. Took that, times it out, makes 173,880 days. Set the time, March 14, 445 B.C., all the way to the, the, those many days later. And that's when Jesus came riding in on the donkey there into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, exactly on that day. Now, the Jews, looking forward from this prophecy and using their calendar, they should have figured it out. They should have known this is clear. The Messiah is going to be coming in uh, on this date. And on that very day prophesied, Jesus did make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the crowds held him as the Messiah. We celebrate Palm Sunday. Zechariah prophesied it would happen like this. Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, Jesus certainly knew about this prophecy. He knew the exact date. He knew when it was going to happen. So he would not let anybody, you know, hail him as king. He would not let them fulfill it up until, until it was exactly that same date. And Gabriel tells Daniel that he was to know and discern the date. Again, the Jews didn't, they didn't do it. They didn't look at it. They didn't obey it. And the years progressed. That's why after Jesus rode in on that donkey, we read this in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you in one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So you should have known. I had it laid out. You should have known because you did not know. Now it's hidden from your eyes. You know, the, 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 the temple is going to be destroyed. They missed it. And they crucified their Messiah, even as it was predicted. Look at verse 26. It says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So after the 173,880 days, after he comes into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey, the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. Jesus was crucified, not for himself. He, he died on the cross for each one of us. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, verse 27, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The word after in verse 26 is very important. So is the word then, the beginning of verse 27. Gabriel says, after the 7-7, after 483 years, there's going to be a break. There's going to be an interval of time before that final seven-year period out of, out, of, out of the 70 weeks. See, we're still talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. And up until verse 26, only 69 have been accounted for. The 70th seven, the final seven years would come. Now, certain things would be occurring during the break from 69 to 70. It says in verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, the prince to come is the title of the Antichrist. Who are his people? Well, since the Antichrist is going to re- rise up out of a revived Roman Empire, then the people that he, that, that he comes are, are the Romans. And we know from history that Titus and the Romans, these just came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. It says here that the same interval, the end of it shall be with a flood. That can mean the dispersion of all the Jews throughout all over the, all the earth. That is exactly what happened. We know that desolation certainly described the experience of the dispersed Jews. I think the most important thing to see here, though, is the there's an interval of unspecified period of time that occurs after the first 70, 69 weeks, right before the final uh, one week or final seven years. And that's been going on for almost, you know, 2,000 years, over 1,900 years. We're living in this, this break right now. We call it the church age. You know, it, it's when the Jews resisted the ministry of Jesus, he began building his church. Church was a mystery, the Bible says. Mystery is something previously hidden, but now revealed. Jesus has been building his church during this interval. And when he's done building it, he's taken us home to heaven and what we know is the rapture of the church. And after we're taken, safely tucked away, again, verse 27, Then he, the prince who is to come the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to his sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Antichrist is going to come on the scene those last seven years. What will he do? What will he do? He's going to make a covenant, seven-year covenant with many, 
I mean, he's going to be this guy come on this scene. We've talked about him before in, in, on Sunday mornings in, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. This guy come on the scene, this, this man of peace, very uh, uh, charismatic guy, make a covenant, uh, I mean, a, a, a covenant, a treaty. He's going to solve the Middle East problem. I said, listen, we don't need any more troops to be on the Lord. We don't need all this, this, all this attack here and this. I got a plan that's going to stop all the, all the violence. What we need to do is we need to build the third temple for the Jewish people. And, and here's this plan for this peace agreement. And you know what the Orthodox Jews say today? They say that we know the Messiah has come when he builds our third temple. Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to want to do just that. I've got a plan. Somehow it's going to all work out and, 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 and with skill and intrigue and everybody's going to go, wow, this is our God, this is the Messiah. But in the middle of that treaty, that seven-year treaty, in verse 27 it says, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, three and a half years into the Great Tribulation period, the Antichrist colors are going to come out. He's going to go into that temple and cause the sacrifices to cease what's called the abomination of desolation and other places. He'll set up an image of himself and say, worship this image of me. He'll say that he's a God and this image will seem to have life and you must worship this image or you're going to die. Jews refuse to do that. The Antichrist will then go on the warpath seeking to kill every last Jewish person. Lord says he's going to take his people into the wilderness, protect them for three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. So all this is, is weaving together. The church's rapture and the Antichrist makes this treaty three and a half years later. Then all, and during that time all hell breaks loose and in a way you or I could never imagine. Finally, at the end of that seven year tribulation period, the end of Daniel's 70th week, that Jesus comes back to rule and to reign on this earth for a thousand years. And we looked at that on Sunday. That's going to be incredible. Gabriel said back in verse 24, the Messiah will come to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. See, the key to the 70 weeks of Daniel is realizing once again that from, from the time the Messiah was cut off until the time the Antichrist rises to power, the clock was not ticking. There was this parenthesis for God's plan for the Jewish people. But again, praise God, that's where we fit in, where God makes a way for Gentiles to come to salvation. See, God, for the last 2,000 years, has his thumb on the stopwatch of Israel's countdown while he saved us. Made it really making the Jews jealous of our relationship with him. We're told in Romans 11.25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wiser in your own opinion, that blindness is part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Once that last person gets saved, during the church age is saved, we'll be out of here. That's the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And then God will deal with the nation of Israel once again. Stage is set for this to come to pass. You see, 70 weeks are determined upon Israel, verse 24 told us. In other words, God's saying, Israel is the key. That's the timepiece. Watch what goes on in Israel. Israel will be destroyed. They're going to be scattered. But then you're going to come back again into this land. See, I believe God is getting ready to start his timepiece up again. In order for that to happen, the Jews had to be back in their land. And now they are. Why? Because God's word is true. When he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We live in exciting times. Bible prophecy explains human history. Without prophecy, history is meaningless. It's, it's, it's endless. It's useless. 
Now, people today are struggling to get, you know, current events into perspective. What's going on with, with Russia and, 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 and Turkey and Iran and, 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 and Israel? But we need to get Bible prophecy in perspective. Remember that Israel is the centerpiece of Bible prophecy, but Jesus Christ is the center person of biblical prophecy. He's coming again. Let's look for him. Let's pray.